safetyfm.com with Jay Allen. Changing safety cultures, one broadcast and one podcast at a time. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Safety FM with Jay Allen. I hope everything is good and grand inside of your neck of the woods as we get to hang out on this fantastic Tuesday, February the 20th of 2024. So listen, today is going to be a true doozy that we're going to go over. So over the last few weeks, I've been out of the country, hanging out, doing some things, but I had this great opportunity last week to be at the Global Safety Innovation Summit at Wollongong, Australia. Now, we did some things here. We got to hang out with about 603 different delegates that came out and took a look at the sessions that were going on. So what we did was, during the event, we took a good chunk of the actual speakers that spoke at the event and spoke to them directly after their presentation. So during this episode today, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to play the presentation that took place at the Global Safety Innovation Summit. And then I'm going to give you the direct interview right after the actual presentation took place. Today, we're going to start it off with the one and the only Todd Conklin. So sit back and relax as Todd takes you down the journey and then take a listen to the end where you can listen to our little brief conversation on what's going on here on Safety FM with JL. Welcome to the stage, Todd Conklin. Totally, you know this, right? You're totally in the splice zone right here. You're going to get wet, so just be ready for it. Okay, so I have a problem. And the problem is, I have been here three stinking days, and nary a Tim Tam has met my lips. Does anyone have any? Nobody? You disappoint me greatly. Okay, before I get started, I probably should ask this question because I'm dying to ask it. How many of you were drugged to this meeting by what I would call an overzealous safety person in your company? Just be honest. Just show, show me your hands. No, it's okay. We'll, we'll love you. No, I mean, we'll love you. Yeah, did, did they say stuff to you like, oh, this will be great. Oh, my God. This is, gonna, this is incredible. Okay, so, so it's a safety meeting. Don't get all wound up. I'm just telling you, when the bar's that low, it's easy to overperform. That's all I'm going to go. And I've been asked to tell you guys a story because I think it's a pretty good kickoff story for you guys. And I have so much to share with you. First of all, I couldn't be more happy to be here. Um, what a perfect time to be in Wollongong, or as you cool cats call it. You know what they call it, right? The gong. <laughs> Where are you going? The gong. See you there, right? It's great to be here. But to start this, I should probably tell you a bonus that just is a story you need to hear. And that was a couple, oh gosh, probably a couple months ago. It all kind of runs together. I'm teaching a class at my place, and it's great. I mean, it's wonderful. And there's a pretty good crowd of people. It's all field-level supervisors. So you kind of get the vibe already. So if you guys ever had to teach a field supervisor class, yeah, some of you? So if you haven't, basically, they sit in the room with their arms crossed and dare you to teach them something. <laughs> Actually, the look you're doing right there, right? Susan? 
That's kind of like, I'm here, they're paying me, go ahead. And in the middle of class, it's just, and, and I promise you, there's no agenda to this at all. In the middle of class, this guy's mobile phone rings. Well, so I don't know how you feel about mobile phones, but for me, I'm always super happy it's their phone and not my phone. So I don't care. Uh, this, and it's probably work. It's the middle of the day. I mean, this is no big deal. But the poor guy kind of freaks out. And he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and his mobile's ringing with kind of, I would suggest, a ring that borderlines a little on goofy. You know what I mean? It's, a, it's not a ring that an adult would use. Let's just put that. <laughs> and he's not doing it. He's just kind of fro- like paralyzed. And I thought, he doesn't know what to do. So I say to the guy, if you need to get that phone call, you can. And he looks visibly relieved. I mean, he just looked relieved. And he picks up the phone, and he answers it. The only problem is, he does not leave the class. <laughs> and that's kind of my fault, because I gave him permission. He grabs the phone and goes, yeah, which I think is how those people say good morning. I don't speak the language, but there are probably people who do. And then there's a pause, and he says, I'm in training. And then there's a pause, and he says, it's all day. And that one had a blade in it. I felt that one hit me pretty hard. <laughs> and then he says these words. It's totally true. He says, doesn't suck as much as I thought it would. <laughs> That's kind of the standard I like to set. (laughs) So if you're looking for the bar to cross, well, that's a big part of it. But what's so interesting about this meeting today is that I want you to look around in this room because it's quite remarkable. And then I want you to think this. Every single person in this room is on pretty much the same journey. And what's amazing, at least in my mind, is we've been given the opportunity to pick up this journey at a time where change is not only in the air, but is being embraced by our organization. I mean, I don't know if you just saw what I saw, but that was the CEO of a large company using language that we hope and pray our organization will use. I mean, that's got to make you feel better about what's happening. And that is a big part of the journey. But I'm going to suggest to you that in this room, the one thing we share is the ability to learn from each other. And really, I have three messages today, and they're pretty easy. Number one, our fundamental job is to redefine safety. That's what every one of us in this room does almost every single day. And what we're doing is we're moving safety from the absence of injury to the presence of capacity. And if you haven't heard that before... Get ready, because you're going to hear that crap a lot. I mean, people are going to say that like it's meaningful. Oh, yeah, I've got a lot of capacity over here in this booth. Look how much capacity they have in the beer tent. I mean, there's capacity, (laughs) right? The second thing I want to share with you, and I think it's really important, is that the effort you put in in managing this change almost entirely needs to happen at the leadership level. In fact, I would suggest to you that the work we do with the workers should be fun, it should be refreshing for them, and it should motivate and revitalize them because you're not telling them anything they haven't been thinking since the day they started working. Like when you say, well, you know, it's not so much you, but the system we put you in, your workers are going to look at you and go, yeah, (laughs) first day, because, right? That idea that the effort we spend on leaders is really important. And it leads me to the third thing. 
And the third thing I think is maybe the most important thing, but it's probably the hardest one to talk about. And that is I think our biggest enemy in helping change be successful is success. We're in a really weird place where prevention is really important to us. In fact, I would suggest prevention is vital to us. Anything we can prevent, we should totally prevent. The problem is, is that the more we get good at preventing, the less good we get at recovering. And when you take away sort of half of the equation, what happens is we catch organizations in the midst of surprises. So that's what I want to talk about, but I need to show some slides because I don't know if you guys know this. They went to a lot of work to get this to work. So if I don't do this, I'm going to be an enemy. That is actually not my opening slide, but I'm glad it's there. I mean, that's, that's, I think that's culturally amazing. If you don't translate that, ask Martha. She'll tell you what it says, right? This is really where we want to go with this slide. Not this slide. This slide's boring. This is my new bio picture slide. So I just wanted to show it to you. <laughs> the problem is, is Cass said it's confusing. So I went ahead and just defined it a little better. <laughs> So if there's any question which is which, I, I hope that helps you. <laughs> that should be a big part of it. What I want to do with you almost immediately out of the shoot today is actually run a small simulation. Are you okay with that? Okay, so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to talk about how powerful your organization's systems are. But to do that, what I'm going to say is in a moment I'm going to say go. And it's going to sound like this. Ready? Go. <laughs> want to hear it again? Go. So when you hear me say, go, like that, what I need you to do, without thinking, almost entirely in muscle memory, is stand up, turn around, and greet the person behind you. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Go! My friends, systems are powerful. <laughs> and you were placed in the middle of a system that really only had one potential outcome. And that is you're going to get to meet the bum of the person behind you. <laughs> the great thing is about half of you are so hardcore safety people, you went ahead and made it work. Well, let me just talk to you anyway, right? <laughs> this idea that systems dictate outcomes is a big part of the journey you're on with the organization. And part of the fundamental shift that we'll talk about a bunch, and you're going to hear spoken of many, many times, is this idea that somehow the belief that if workers behaved better, we'd have better outcomes, has taken over the global vocabulary. And I would agree it's true. I mean, if people never did bad things, we never had bad things happen. The problem is, is that's not the world they give you. And it's not the organization you have, and it's not the people who work there. You have an incredible group of people who are brilliant, who are remarkable, who are adaptive, who are problem solvers, who in real time are working to create production and operational success in spite of your crappy systems. And I want you to think about that. That idea is an incredibly important part 
of the discussion we have as we sort of move down there. And I think to get there, we have to first and foremost take this nod to the fact that if we want different outcomes, we have to create different systems. That if you want different end products, it's not an output problem, it's an input problem. And if you think about the many systems you interface with on a daily basis, there's lots of great thought about this that's happening all around the globe. It's a big part of the discussion we want to have. But where it takes us, I think, is in this slide. And I owe you this slide because I think I have to show this slide because if I don't show this slide, a big part of the dialogue that senior leaders who came to this meeting today are going to wonder why I'm here won't be answered. And that is, I think the journey we've been on is remarkable. In fact, if I were to draw a line of accidents over time, what would that line look like? Any guesses? So here's how today will work. We're going to ask you questions. Then we're going to look at you lovingly. That's this part right here. Loving, (laughs) loving, loving. And when I do that, make stuff up and say it back to me. So any guesses on where this is going to go? In fact, it's almost dramatically down. I mean, it's remarkable. And the crazy thing is I can normalize this across industry. It's easy to get the data in steel because you guys collect data like crazy. Energy sector, man, they got more data than they know what to do with. And what's amazing to me is what I'm going to say to you next. You have never worked in an organization where you're less likely to get injured than right now. Ever, 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 ever. And yet, you've never been in an organization where you're probably equally likely to get killed. And that difference is the reason probably, I don't want to speak for all of us, but the vast majority of people in this room are here. That idea is really, I came for the Tim Tams. I mean, I I know why I'm here. It's really transparent. That idea is really important. And that movement is a big part of what we should talk about. And and we sort of moved methodically over time. And you're going to see, because many of you in this room have been around a while, not that you're old, you're super, super handsome. I will tell you, though, this is a good room to be a bald man in, because there's a lot of us. (laughs) Good thing is that the horse, the hotel's going to run out of washcloths, but have a lot of extra shampoo. So... It evens out, right? Right? It starts really with the notion of compliance. And you guys will remember this. And this is where things like behavioral-based safety came in. This is where policy and policy adherence, procedure, procedure writing. This is where rules and regulation got introduced. And the amazing thing about compliance is that when we started looking at compliance, what happened? We saw immediate improvement. I mean, we just got better. And then we started leveling out. And the crazy thing about compliance is that compliance is really an important way to set the standard, but it's not a very effective way to maintain the standard. And my favorite example of that is the idea that more rules will not create more safety. And what's amazing is as the workforce is changing, and all of you are feeling this, so we share this together, We have a workforce now that's coming in that's less invested in a long-term relationship with us 
And so therefore, they're less invested in the value and importance of our stupid rules. And you just hear it all the time. I mean, they say it all the time. That rule makes no sense to me. Just at a big facility where 100% safety glass, so that means bathrooms and cafeteria, right? Any guesses why they made that rule? Clear, easy to manage, expectation set, right? The problem is they didn't really mean you couldn't take your safety glasses off and clean them in the bathroom. They didn't really mean that you didn't have to wear safety glasses while eating salad. I would suggest that's not really food, but that's what they had. I don't know if your company's doing this. All these companies are doing these healthy menus. What is wrong? Dude, I don't know who that's for, because as soon as I leave work, something's going to fry. I promise you. (laughs) The challenge with compliance is that sustainability section. And that's when we started looking at really process safety, or safety by design. And probably all of us in this room have a relatively rigid and good understanding of what we mean by process safety or safety by design. And that is we figured out if you design a system to be safer than a system that's not designed to be safer, what happens is it's safer. So we started looking at control rooms and crane pendants and doors and steps. And I mean, and we started saying, you know, we can be smarter about it. We can make this better. And we saw another level of improvement. But then we started flattening out. Now, who can tell me what a curve in any process that goes dramatically down and then plateaus is called? It's one of my favorite words because it sounds dirty, even in Australia. And most stuff isn't dirty in Australia. I just want to put that out there. That curve is called a asymptote, right? Doesn't that sound like, like you just did something like, like if, you're, if someone looks at you and says, hey, asymptote, what are you going to say? <laughs> You know what to say? Are you an engineer? <laughs> you know when you look away, I'm still here, right? Because <laughs> I'm talking to him, and he's like, oh. <laughs> he's back. but <laughs> What's an asymptotic curve tell you? What's it tell you about any process? Do you remember this? And there's people in this room that have been through lots of process stuff, so you guys know this. What's it tell you? Yeah, you've reached your limit. In fact, what I'm going to tell you is doing the same thing harder or louder or slower or more of it isn't giving us that outcome. And so we started looking, and incredible people all around the globe started really digging into this. And a bunch of them you're going to meet this week. I mean, they're here. They're like, they put their pants on the same way you do, over their head. I mean, it's... We started looking around, and, and what's amazing is we, we thought, well, compliance focuses on the people, which makes sense, right? And pretty important, pretty vital. Design, by definition, focuses on the system. Stand up, turn around, greet the person behind you, right? What we ought to do is look at the place where people meet the system. And that innovative approach is really the origin for all of us in this room and the very real improvements that we started to see. Because what it did is really brilliant. I mean, it's super brilliant. What it did was give us an entirely new set of questions to ask. In the old days, we would go out and say, where is risk the highest? And that was a good question. 
And we ask it a lot. And workers told us, this is high risk. This is a critical step. This process matters dramatically. But when we started looking at the place where risk meets people, we had to, by necessity, add another question. And the question we added is this. Where is risk the highest and control the lowest? And then over time, what happened is we started realizing that going out and identifying where risk is high is not terribly interesting. Because depending on what you guys do for a living, risk is relatively normal. It's super dynamic, and risk hates a vacuum. As soon as you take one risk away, what shows up? Yeah, or maybe two more, right? So we started saying, let's, instead of identifying places where risk is high, let's look for places where control is low. And what's amazing is that led to an entirely different dialogue. Because what scares me more than anything is this part of the asymptotic curve which I would suggest makes it no longer an asymptotic curve, but we can talk about that later. And that is that organizations that have really good industrial safety numbers, like really, and they're not even big fat liars, they are really good industrial safety numbers, still kill people. And part of what we learned in understanding this interface, in understanding where people and work met, is that in fact, these kind of accidents are different. The things that hurt people aren't the same things that kill people. And that fatalities don't happen because of a failure to prevent the accident. They happen because of a failure to control the accident. And what's amazing is when we started looking at that new set of questions, we started getting a new set of answers. And what we automatically learned, just as quickly as we could, is that the very best people to answer those questions are not us. I don't know how you feel about that, but near as I can tell, any time someone will take work off my desk, that's a good day. (laughs) And if they say to you, you know, let's go have the workers help us understand what essential controls are necessary for this work, that actually takes that work and puts it to the pointy end where the people who actually do the work live. And what's amazing, and many of you in this room have been on this experiment, is that it works amazingly well. But what's freaky for us in this room is that what they point out, we never thought of. How many times have you sat down with a group of workers and you ask them what controls need to be present for us to do this work, and they say something and you're just like, holy crap, why didn't we think of that? That's power and engagement at a really fine level. That's really important. That takes us to the idea of these fatalities. And fatalities only live in normal work. I promise you, fatalities don't live in rapidly eroding systems. Want to know why? Because if you have a rapidly eroding system, you're not at a conference in the gong. You're back at the plant fixing the rapidly eroding system. It's normal work in a normal day. And that was another huge lesson for us. Because what it helped us understand is, wow, we ought to understand what normal work looks like in order to talk about how to improve normal work. Because what we've traditionally done is study accidents. And we study the crap out of accidents. I'm in a room full of people who are actually pretty good at studying accidents with high ethics and a high alignment towards factual analysis. 
we look at accidents and try our hardest to tell the true story. What it means is we're studying the system at its very worst. What we need to do is study the system at its very normal. That's a really powerful shift in thinking. And that's exactly what you're doing. It's remarkable. All of this takes us on the journey. And the journey we're on is pretty important. But it starts with this. Now, this, in fact, is a picture of me. Um, So you know that the camera takes away like 400 pounds. How does a hurdler jump a hurdle? Do you guys call them hurdlers? You don't call them hurdos? (laughs) Or jumpos? Because it feels like you would call them jumpos. Like, oh, the jumpos are out, and then I'd be like, okay, and think I'm going to see like a kangaroo, but it's a hurdler. How does a hurdler jump a hurdle? Okay, so one leg at a time is really important. If it's not one leg at a time, then it's a hoppo, <laughs> right? Now, this is an Olympic athlete, and these are low hurdles. Why isn't he like, I don't know, a meter above that hurdle? Because he could do it. Efficiency. So how's a hurdler jump a hurdle? Is this, I'm sorry, are these too hard? Should I just stick with yes or no questions? Okay, so how many people either have or had older parents? Just by show of hands. Just, I'm just kind of checking it out, okay? How does a hurdler jump a hurdle? So they're going to go as close to the hurdle as they can without hitting the hurdle in order to be efficient. Because how do they determine who wins the race? Yeah, whoever comes first, right? Weirdly, I would suggest this little story has more to do with the work that happens in your facility than maybe any other story I can think of. Because your workers are going to be as safe as they need to be. And I can say that because if they feel like they need to be safer, do you know what your really smart people do? become safer. They slow down, they pause, they get tools, they call people, they bring you in. I mean, they're really good at this. The problem is, is they're as safe as they need to be without being overly safe. Because what's wrong with being overly safe? Hurdlers, hurdos, hoppos. Yeah, I mean, you've given up efficiency. And the question I would ask you is, if you're safe, do you need to be safer? I, I, it's a really, I mean, maybe I'll give you a little better example of that. Imagine that I'm in a bathtub, completely naked. You're a visual thinker. Do you know what he did? His mouth went like this. Some vomit came in. I, I felt it kind of. There's suds all over me. Don't worry, right? Candles everywhere. I'm playing Kenny G music. It's perfect. I'm in that bathtub up to my neck in water. You come in with a bucket full of water and pour it on me. Did I just get wetter? Did I? Because what's the problem with wet? Once you're wet, you're not getting wetter. I mean, you're wet, right? Think of this when you think of this relationship that workers have with our idea of safety. Safety is so easy for for those of us in this room to determine retrospectively. I mean, it's just you were either safe enough or not safe enough. The problem is, is that in real life, the test is productivity. So I showed this slide the other day, and this person in the middle of the room says to me, 
that slide's offensive. And I said, are you, are you serious? This slide offends you. And she goes, yes. And she was pretty mad. And I thought, of all the other crap I said, that's what triggered her. This is the one, because I was thinking that's the last slide. And I, 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 I didn't know what to do. Because I wanted to sort of figure out why she was offended, but I didn't want to be offensive, because clearly I had already met that target. So I said, well, how come you find this offensive? Now, really, every bone in my body wanted to say, when is the last time you touched a tool? But that felt snarky, kind of. That didn't feel healthy, right? So I said, what offends you? And she said, in this company, you can never be too safe. What would you say to her? And yet, in this room, what have you said when managers have said that to you? Because there are many of us in this room that have had this conversation. Well, the quick answer is, ask them this question. How do you know you're safe enough while you're driving? While you're driving. Anybody want this one? So I'm saying this out loud, right? I'll I'll try one more time. Only questions go up at the end. How do you know you're safe enough while you're driving? Okay, so you haven't wrecked. That's a pretty good metric. Super elegant, super easy to measure. Unfortunately, that's really more of a post-event metric, unless how creepy are you as a person? On a scale of one to two, one is not creepy at all, and two is like, wow. You're a two? Okay, well, that's good to know. Unless you're the kind of person the whole time you're driving, you're like this, not dead yet, didn't die there, still not dead. Could have died there, but not dead, not dead. You're scared, aren't you? Ah, right? How do you know you're safe enough while you're driving? So rules are great, right? But are they enough to ensure safety? So how do you know you're safe enough? So is feeling safe the same as being safe? Yeah, it's weird, but if you don't feel safe, are you safe? Probably not. I mean, I think you hit it best. I think that it changes the way we think about that definition of safety. That, in fact, when you're driving, you're not performing a task. It's not like house to office, task one, right? We could write a procedure for that. It'd be long and boring, but it would fit right in with the rest of them, so that's good. (laughs) When you drive, you're constantly performing thousands and thousands and thousands of micro tasks, right? Little tiny tasks. And what you're really doing is assessing the conditions and adjusting the performance. And when you think about that, that changes everything. Because that says, instead of managing the presence of risk as a toto, as a hazard assessment document, what we're really going to see is how workers in real time identify risk and adjust control. And it changes everything. Where once high voltage looked really scary and dangerous, because it was really scary and dangerous, now you start thinking, we don't have that many high voltage problems because we have such good controls in place. But you start looking at things like moving a ute across the back lot, right? Or a fork truck, right? And you start thinking, wow, lots of risk, but not a lot of control. And that makes everything completely different. That's ultimately the journey you're on as a company. 
And for the leaders that got drug here because it was promised to be really fun, that entire conversation was for you. Because the one thing I want to tell you as a leader is the belief that your system is perfect and the belief that your procedures are sufficient and the belief that hazards are all identified is not true. In fact, you don't count on procedures. You count on people adaptively using those procedures. And the sooner we realize that, the smarter we are. And that's a powerful piece of what happens. That takes us to these five principles. And I want to talk about them really quickly because I don't have a bunch of time, but you guys know these, so I'm not too worried. They're really simple. People screw up. When they do, we tend to blame them. Blaming gets us nothing. Learning is the key tool we have, and there are many, many roads to get to positive learning, and we're going to talk about them all in the next three days. Context is your most powerful tool to understand behavior. And last but not least, how leaders respond makes the biggest difference. So what do we know about error? Well, people make mistakes, that's for sure. And human error is not something to be feared. It's also not something that you can control or even remove from your system. So one of the things, if I could give you any gift for your organization... It's a realization that error is super normal. In fact, it's so normal, it's kind of boring. <laughs> and it's never a choice. The problem with retrospect is it makes mistakes choices. So before something bad happens, they're doing work. After something bad happens, they made a bad choice. The problem is, is that the vast majority of times they're doing work, bad things don't happen. It's not interesting. It's never causal. It's normal. Now, knowing this is really important. But let me just share with you that part of the developmental journey you're on as a company is this air thing is a big stinking deal. And people are going to want to talk about it. And they're going to want to talk about air. They're going to talk about how we create an environment where we don't punish honest mistakes. And every time they say that to you, say, well, do we punish dishonest mistakes and they'll say, we, I don't know what that means. And you say, well, I don't either, but there must be one because you said honest mistake. <laughs> I mean, a mistake is a mistake is a mistake. But it's a part of the journey to understand that the people who work with you need time to process this idea. Because they still believe somehow that a better person would have made a better choice. The problem is, is that prima facie on its surface Assume somehow that error is a choice. And the most valuable thing I can share with you is error is never a choice. It's just not a choice. But you can't really talk about blame until you talk about error. And the crazy thing about this blame stuff is that this has rocket shoes. And what shoots throughout your entire organization is this idea that we're going to become blame-free. We are blame-free. Well, no, that doesn't say blame-free. If you have a person that comes to work and kills premature babies and nuns, I would blame them. <laughs> I would also question your hiring practices, but that's a different story, right? You've got sociopaths working for you, and by the way, you do. <laughs> you know this, right? Every company has sociopaths. 
You know this? Okay. You can name them. I mean, don't do it now. <laughs> what scares me is if you can't name them, it's probably you, and we should talk. <laughs> the crazy thing is, is this blame conversation seems like a really easy tag to hang on. We're not going to have blame free. And yet, that's really not the point at all. The challenge to me is that, not that blame fixes nothing. I promise you, blame fixes nothing. What blame mostly does is stop learning. So shifting from why to how, or from who to what, those are questions that you change that have phenomenal outcomes. And one of the things I'm going to ask you to do is in your organization, on your critique documents, the documents that people use to report unusual or off-normal events, verbiage those documents so that you take away all the who part. Just take it away. Because first of all, everyone knows who did it. That's not some kind of like secret mystery. Everyone knows. Well, except you. Everyone else knows. But what happens is it shifts that thinking towards really that understanding of the larger environment in which work happens. The traditional view of error is really easy. It's either an error or a violation. They either screwed up or really screwed up, right? I mean, that's how it works. What's sad is what that misses is the space between. So when is a rule not a rule? Well, if I don't know the rule, it's not a rule. If I don't understand the rule, it's not a rule. If it's stupid, it's not a rule. You with me? You know this story's coming. She's just waiting for it. So last night I think, I'm going to have a gin and tonic. I'm an adult. Right? I mean, this is, this is what adults drink. I'm going to have all the rest of you guys are drinking adult drinks. I'm a little Diet Coke. Oh, look at me. I ordered gin and tonic. There's a big bottle of Saint Germain. Do you know that drink? It's elderflower. It's basically like sugar. It's, it is. So I asked the guy, can I have a splash of Saint Germain? Everybody with me? Sound good? He looks at me in the eye and he says, I'll have to charge you $10 for that. I said, what? He said, it's $10. I said, how do you sleep at night? <laughs> said, I'm sorry, sir. It's a really important rule. I said, no, I don't think, I bet the, I'm pretty sure we can go through your entire policy book. There is no rule that says $10 for San Germain. And he said, I'm sorry. I said, well, who's in charge? And he said, the owner's at home. I said, well, I bet they are because it's nighttime. That's where owners go. But who's in charge? And just then the chef walks out. And he says, the chef is. And I looked at the chef and I said, are you really going to charge me $10 for a splash of San Germain? And he was so Australian. He looked at me and he said, F no, you can have that for free. <laughs> Didn't make it better. <laughs> then it was really awkward. So I thought, well, if I want to drink spit, I'll finish this drink, but maybe I shouldn't, right? This idea that rules are important is key. And what we know is this focus is where things happen. We'll always find workers that screw up. The problem is, is that when they screw up, they're almost always successful at screwing up. And that part is vital to what we think about. We have to stop seeing the worker as the problem. And this shift, it's one of the big three, this shift is vital. And you will be surprised at how subtle and effective we are 
at sort of gently making everything the worker's problem. When we start seeing the worker as the solution, that's when we start to see improvement. That's when our data goes up and our fatalities go down. But you have to remember human error is not a choice. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. Blame stops learning. If you take nothing else out of here, I want you to remember that. The minute we go to blame, we stop analysis. Because you don't need to analyze anymore if you know why it happened. They didn't follow the procedure. Bang. Bob's your uncle. Problem found. Problem fixed. And yet, what it means is we'll aggressively fix the wrong things effectively. Which takes us to learning. Learning's everything. Learning's vital. Knowing more makes an organization smarter. My guess is a lot of your learning is limited by the systems you use to learn. We oftentimes reduce our ability to actually understand an event because it has to fit into a pull-down menu on our computer to meet some causal code. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever looked you in the eye and said this before, but that's dumb. I mean, that's just dumb. If you're force-functioning causal codes onto events, then what you're doing is you're making up crap about the event. And if you don't make up crap, you don't really need to do the investigation. I mean, you should act like you're doing it, but I would go eat donuts for a long time. <laughs> I mean, that's what happens. Stop seeking cause and start seeking conditions. Look at the bigger picture, because the bigger picture is much more compelling. But the reason the bigger picture matters is because it's also much more sustainable in the way it allows improvement to happen. Increase diversity, don't decrease diversity. I, I can't say this to you enough, that the biggest mistake we make is we take finite groups of people and we use those finite people and we get really good data from a finite set. Here's my theory, and you guys will get this. Most people I talk to don't understand this. If you put a fire protection specialist on your investigation team, I 100% guarantee the investigation will have a section in fire prevention. <laughs> Am I blind? Right? Because that's their expertise. So think about this. If I want more expertise in psychology, or I want legal to be a part of the investigation, or I want ops to have a louder voice in this investigation, or I want logistics to play in this role, Bring them in. Widen the loop. Don't narrow the loop. And it makes a huge, huge difference. That is important because we have to start studying normal work. We have to start asking what's happening when nothing bad's happening. And you're going to hear this a lot in the next three days. And I actually think this is a really important question. And it's from our friend Eric Hallnagel. I put it in there because Eric uh, was unable to be here. He almost was here. But because he was unable to be here, I thought... If he wanted one slide up here, this would be the one he'd want. What's happening when nothing bad's happening? We're listening for weak signals. We're identifying them early. We have lots of capacity. If we wait for a long time, the capacity goes away, which takes us to behavior. This is the one that you're going to spend the most time talking to leaders about because this is the one that's kind of hard to give up on. The best example I can give you is help them understand that the behavior they're seeing on the production floor is a direct result of the operational culture they've created. That is a hard message at first, but it gets easier. One of the ways you can make it easier is to ask this question. 
do you behave differently in a biker bar than you do in church? Don't let them answer because that gets really awkward. (laughs) That's like the chef telling the bartender he's an idiot. There's not a good outcome for that, right? But this is a really important piece of data. Now, you saw me skip two slides. They're both kind of important. The one I would share with you is the one way I look at this idea of understanding organizational culture is to ask the question, we get to choose the accident we're going to have. So we're going to have failure. Failure is normal. But we get to choose that accident. And we're going to choose that based upon sort of the robustness and effectiveness of the systems in which we put our people. You can't change behavior by changing behavior. It just doesn't work. I promise you. If you want to eat less Tim Tams, you should go to a place where there are fewer Tim Tams. (laughs) Clearly, I'm here. I mean, I thought this would be a whole different meeting. I really kind of thought it would just be a Tim Tam orgy. (laughs) It's not like that. (laughs) My eyes are up here. Okay, up here. (laughs) Stay up. (laughs) Right? And last but not least, how leaders respond matters. And, And this is key. In fact, this, to a great extent, is the big reason I think we're all together, is that the change happens when we realize that this next part of the bargain is really a change in how leaders respond. And we know that leaders have lots to lose. And that means they have, in many cases, the most fear. And I want you not to ever let go of the fact that leaders have fear, too. And that one of the things they fear is if they stop doing what they've always done, the outcome will be anarchy. There will be people running with scissors. It will be crazy. I mean, honestly, they kind of think that. We have to help them understand that that's not true. And I think we do this. The welcome to country could not have been better, first of all. Holy cow, that was amazing. But look what this slide says. I think the challenge we have in this room, and leaders who are here as visitors, this is right to you as well is are we telling you the right stories to get you to ask the right questions? Because here's what I'll share with you. If your leadership team is not asking the right questions, it's not the leadership team's fault. It's our fault. We're not giving them the right impetus. We're not giving them the right story, the right data, to get them to be curious about the right things. That's key. Whether you're a senior leader a floor-level leader, a regulator, are we giving you the right stories to get the right questions? And that takes me to the conference assignment. So I just took the liberty of creating a little homework for you for the next three days. First and foremost, I want you to meet three people a day. This is not for the extroverts, but you know who you are. The second person's going to be hard. The third person's actually easier. Okay, you'll make it. But I want you to meet three people a day, know their name, and know something about them. Step two, ask your fellow conferees what they've learned the most from doing, either right or wrong. To me, that question is powerful because I'm just as interested in what they do right, but I'm super interested in what they do wrong. Because if I can learn from them what not to do, this conference paid for itself. Third, Find a traditional safety belief that you brought in and replace it. 
That's a big one. And then last but not least, ask yourself, how am I making this world better? And you all are. That's a big part of what you do. That takes me ultimately to the three lessons we started. Safety is a capacity. We have to redefine safety. We have to start and then continue with leadership. It's a conversation you will have many, many, many times. Just be patient. Eventually it will stick. And then third and, fourth, or third and foremost, keep the conversation about the relationship between risk and control. My final slide is pretty serious. So this just happened recently. I checked into a hotel. I got to the room. How, should, how do I? I don't know how to say this. I was making myself comfortable. You with me? I looked up, and the housekeeping person had set this on the counter. My life changed this week. Uh, can you see why? You guys, I didn't even know they made professional toilet paper. I mean, you guys, you do everything right here. That's all I'm going to say. It, it, it's like using the drapes. It was dreamy. I mean, that's how good it was. That's my time. But I want to do one more thing with you before we get out of here. And it's really simple, and you'll enjoy it. I want you to grab something pokey, a pen, a pencil, your finger, anything that's pokey, and I want you to stand up. Got it? Okay, that's pokey. Good. Yeah, good work. Okay, now point the pokey thing towards the ceiling. Okay, this next part gets a little hard, so listen carefully. Draw clockwise circles on the ceiling. Now, if you don't know which direction clockwise is, Look for somebody who's overly confident and copy off them. Okay, never stop. Always up, always clockwise. Bring that straight down. Up and clockwise. Straight down, straight down, straight down, straight down, straight down. Below your head. Look down. What direction are they going now? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It's kind of like I'm Harry Porter. I mean, that's how good I am, right? What just happened? We shifted perspectives. I promise you, the task stayed the same. Nothing changed with the task. What changes how we looked at it. That's where you are on this journey. I can't wait to hang out with you. You guys have the best conference ever. Thank you so much for your time. So, Todd, you're here. You, I mean, you just legitimately came off that stage. I like this idea. <laughs> the idea of you getting to take every single speaker and do a little hot wash 10 minutes, is. Mm. I actually think that's a really good idea because I'm curious to see what people think. I, I have to, I'm just going to start. I have to apologize because I did not imagine they would fill that room. No, oh, I mean, I, w- I was super impressed. They said 603 delegates in regards to in the room itself. And I, I, they, they certainly had every one of them. Yes. I mean, because it's, yeah, so I'm impressed. Because I was just like, I was thinking about it like a normal safety conference where, you know, people fart around in the hallway and um, don't go to the opening speaker. I mean, that's normal, mm-hmm. but geez, they were, everyone was there. It was packed. And it, it was packed, and if you looked around the room, and I know that you being right up there in the front, there was people standing in the back because yeah. it was so packed inside of there. Yeah, they weren't standing like I do because they don't want to sit. <laughs> they were standing because there were no seats. But it's weird because there were plenty of seats in the front row. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, who's... Nobody I, wants to sit in the front yeah, row. No, I mean, no one's going to sit there. But it was good. I thought it was good. It's going to be a great meeting. 
But and look at this. I mean, think about this. This is a global safety summit that's actually happening in the Gong in Australia. This yeah. is the first of its kind. It's, it's the first yeah. one that, they, that they've done. And to have that room that packed that quick, and then having you come in and speak about some of the stuff that you were speaking inside of that organ inside of Blue Scope. So, yeah, I, uh, I was impressed because I kind of thought if you sponsored, you got a hundred tickets or whatever, you know, fifty tickets. So I thought, well, they they're not going to get rid. I mean. That's 100 open seats. Maybe they'll fill 10, so that's 90 open seats, but clearly that's wrong. They were, it was packed. It was good. So looking at how packed it was and then being able to go over your messaging, so you were able to, to kind of give a, 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 a pretty quick overview of human and organizational performance. Right. Were you able to cover the things that you wanted to yeah. cover? I know that it was a shorter period of time than normal. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, it felt like I needed to talk more about fundamentals for that crowd. Um because when I ask at the beginning, how many of you were drug in here by an overzealous friend? Right. That got a little too much response. <laughs> so that means a lot. But I mean, you gotta, you gotta kind of, you have to start where the crowd is, not where you are. And the crowd was not. I mean, the crowd is that crowd is where they were. And it's a great, I mean, they're, they're in a perfect place. I mean, and I know that here we're going to probably be pre- preaching to the choir when it comes to some of this, but that's, I think, that some of the, the issues that we run into some of the organizations that we get to look at are some of the different conferences where they don't start off where the people in the crowd are. They want to start off exactly where they're located on yeah, their journey. And that's bad. It is. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. It's just bad because they're starting with advanced ideas and the crowd's not there. You've got to talk about mistakes you got to talk about blame before you talk about anything. So you have to start there. So, so we did. So, so that's where you started. So as you went through the whole thing, what do you think next steps are? Where where does this crowd go? Where do they start looking? I know we have three days. I mean, it's a three day. We're, we're on day one. But if you, if you were going to give the additional tip, what would it be? Steal as many ideas as you can. And that's what will happen. I'm eating a candy bar. I'm eating a Mars bar. <laughs> Um, well, no, nobody's seeing it, so the, 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 that's the good part. But it, should we talk about this room for a second? Oh, my God. <laughs> Jay is set up in the bridal waiting area, and it is exactly what you think it is. And then some. A white room <laughs> with lots of mirrors and little chairs. No, I think the next thing is is just the like the safety concert, the safety stock thing. Yes. That'll be hugely successful. Well, if, I want to say that it, that, that it seems like it, that if something's stolen from this conference, at least in regards of what's laid out before the it actually goes into place, this should need to be part of the scene and, and the other conferences that, that go that at least go across in, yeah, in the full, U.S. Full report on that, but they're planning on they have four bands. Yeah, four. Mm-hmm. I bet there's more too, uh, and then taco trucks and a beer tent and soft drinks. And instead of having the big conference banquet, which between us, Jay, I find at best tedious. I mean, they're just not that fun. I mean, you can talk to like three people at the bank, but but this is a whole concert. It's an outdoor, like they have a stage and it's in a green sword at the university. This will be great. So. Now that you mentioned banquet, do you want to mention about the banquets, how they are here? Because it was so weird. <laughs> Especially for the people that are listening in the U.S., it's, which is the majority of the listeners. It's only weird in that, it's, so it's not, so it's, so I didn't know what it was called until last night. They do something called alternative plating. And the way they do banquets, and every banquet I've been to in Australia is the same way, is they bring out every other plate they bring out. So like meat, 
fish, chicken, meat, fish, chicken, meat, fish, chicken. And they set them down. And then if you don't want meat or fish or chicken, you trade at the table. And so it's this whole sociological experiment in trading food. What's amazing is that the people in Australia, that is so normal, and they've, that's how they do it. They don't think of it as even interesting. It's not, it's not even unusual, but it is so unusual if you're not from here. It's just weird to see people trading plates. I mean, it's just, it's just like, wow. Okay, and like everybody, I mean, lots of people trading plates. I wasn't sure if they were going to do musical chairs at first. What did that guy say last last night that was sitting by you? Uh, if you have a wife, you never get to pick. Right, that's, that's exactly what he said. <laughs> just like, oh, okay. So any other tips that you'd like to give the people before we get you out of here? No, that's it. I'm done. Okay, Todd, I appreciate you. Bueno, time. bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.